All right, good evening, many faiths. It's good to be with you all for the fourth week. Gosh, fourth of five weeks. I cannot believe how fast this has gone. And uh, tonight we have another guest, and um, she is going to share about her faith and her life and reflecting on um, some, some intersections between the two. And I think also one thing that's going to be awesome tonight is we get to watch an interfaith friendship in action. And so I'm going to turn it over to Manavit member Wally Palm to introduce our guest. So it's my real honor and privilege to introduce our speaker tonight, Dr. Iris Zafir, Zafir, sorry, Iris. Uh, so Iris is Jewish. She's from Israel. And for the past five years or so, she and I have been very, very close friends. Um, we work together. Um, and so we meet for lunch periodically. Um, we talk about lots of things. We talk about work. In fact, we complain about work and figure that if we were in charge, it would be a whole lot better and so on and so forth. Um, but we also talk about family and we talk about faith. And the conversations that we've had about faith are extremely meaningful and very enriching for me. And I hope for Iris as well. Um, it, it's really, it, it's really deepened the relationship that we have is our ability to talk very openly um, about our faith. Iris's family history has been shaped and and perhaps really defined by one of the most horrific documented genocides in recent history, and that's the Holocaust. She's going to talk a lot about that tonight. So this is something that didn't happen within the lifetime of, of many of us, and so we don't really have any sort of tangible connection to probably the most horrific human tragedy uh, which was the Holocaust. Um, it's something we've read about. Um, it's something that we've seen movies about, but we don't, unlike Iris, have a personal connection to it. And I think that this temporal and physical distance has perhaps made us numb and worse yet, potentially unaware and maybe uncaring about other instances of genocide that have happened before and during our own lifetimes and actually are happening today. Some in our country even have what I'll call the moral bankruptcy to deny that it ever happened. I mean, that's, that's going on around us. And in our situation, it's far too easy to become insulated and to believe that while events like these are massive human tragedies, they couldn't ever happen here, right? Um, or that we have no responsibility to intervene or at a minimum to offer shelter and sanctuary to people that are fleeing modern-day genocides. So as Iris talks tonight, <clears throat> pay attention to what she says, but also think about what's happening around us today in our world, in our country, and go away from here attuned to some of the factors that have historically defined genocide. And actually, I'd... Um, I'd encourage you all to, to Google this, which is the eight stages of genocide. Um, it's by a, a gentleman by the name of Gregory Stanton. And this he's the president of Genocide Watch. And he actually presented this uh, to the State Department in 1996. And this is just a summary. And I'm not going to read them all. But I'm going to read a few of the stages and see if any of this, if you've heard any of this before or recently. 
So first stage, classification. All cultures have categories to distinguish people into us and them by ethnicity, race, religion, or nationality. Stage two, symbolization. We give names or other symbols to the classification. We name people Jews or Muslims or distinguish them by color or class or, or dress. Dehumanization. One group denies the humanity of the other group. Members of it are equated with animals, vermin, insects, or criminality. Organization. Genocide is always organized, usually by the state, but often using militias to provide deniability to state responsibility. Polarization. Extremists drive groups apart. Hate groups broadcast polarizing propaganda. Preparation. Victims are identified and separated out because of their ethnic or religious identity. Lists are drawn up. Have we ever heard any of that before? If you follow the news, you're aware of many of these things. And it all begins with the attitude of us and them. So that's why this series is so great. And that's why it's so great to have Iris here tonight. Because this is about us. Iris. Thank you very much to Wally and Detective Joel for, uh, for inviting me. It's really my privilege to be here tonight. When I was in the fifth or sixth grade, um, I started to notice that my father doesn't leave a crumb on his plate. And if we were eating together as a family, um, and one of the kids would try to throw some food in the trash bin, my father would say, stop, don't, don't throw food away. And then I would go to my friends' houses, and I would see that other adults and children they leave food on their plates, and if people try to throw food in the trash, no one, no one would say anything. Um, and I realized that something must have happened to my father during his lifetime that caused him to have such obsessions about food and about not throwing food away. So like Wally described, the Holocaust, Shoah in Hebrew, happened over 70 years ago. And it seems to many people like it happened in faraway land, this has nothing to do with us, but unfortunately, this is not the case. Genocides have happened since the Holocaust, and unfortunately, they continue to happen today. And to the points that Wally was making around the stages of genocide, 
events that are frighteningly similar to events leading up to the Holocaust are happening today right here in the United States of America. As the daughter of two Holocaust survivors, what I hope to do this evening is to put the Holocaust into perspective. And what I would like to do is share with you my family story. And through that story, I hope to bring the Holocaust into more sharpness and to more perspective for you this evening. I grew up in Israel. Very small country in the Middle East. It's the only democracy in the Middle East. Here you just see a depiction of the relativeness of the size of Israel to the United States. It's a very, very small country. I grew up in Israel in a kibbutz. Uh, and I'm happy to talk more about what a kibbutz is um, when we get to the, to the questions. The kibbutz that I grew up in is located in the uh, south of Israel, in the Negev Desert, if you're familiar uh, with the geography of Israel. When... World War II ended in 1945. It was a date in May when Germany surrendered. What I hope you will understand and feel at the end of our conversation this evening is that the implication of the Holocaust continue way beyond that day when the war ended in 1945. So just to give you some examples from my family. So my father is originally from Poland. He's originally from Krakow. And my mother is from Hungary, from a small area outside of Budapest called Gyur. In Hungary, almost 570,000 Jews were murdered. And it was 70% of the Jewish population of Hungary that was murdered. In Poland, where my father is originally from, 3 million Jews were murdered. 90% of the Jewish population of Poland was murdered during World War II. If you like numbers and statistics, Yoshua, that's the first name of my father, was one of about 350,000 Polish survivors from the Jewish population. And Shali, that's the first name of my mother, was one of about a quarter of a million Hungarian survivors. <coughs> the, the numbers are just staggering. It's very difficult to recapture really and understand what, what those numbers mean. So today I will make those numbers 
much more personal. They're certainly very personal to me. And as I mentioned, with the, world, with the war ending in 1945, the implication of the Holocaust have so just continue on and on. They have implication on nations, they have implications on families, and of course on individuals. And it's certainly true for my family. After the war, my mom and my dad separately moved to Israel. They got married in 1949, and they started a family. And it was the four of us, siblings, Uri, my oldest brother, Asaf, my second <coughs> brother, Ola, my sister, and myself. And it was just the six of us. I didn't have grandparents from either side, aunts or uncles. This is my, my mom and dad. Ima is mother in Hebrew, and Abba is father in Hebrew. Ima and Abba were married in 1949, and this photograph is actually taken in their, um, their marriage day. This is a photograph of Ima with my sister Ola, Asaf, and Uri before I was born. Um, and these are photographs of me with my Ima, and a photograph of me with my Abba. What I remember very, very clearly when I was growing up, our household was very heavy. It was this constant cloud of sadness and sense of loss that was just sitting in our house, even during celebrations. Birthdays, graduations, you bring a good, a good grade home, you've done something really terrific. There's always this cloud of sadness that sits in our house. And when I was younger, especially I remember as a teenager, uh, I just, I just didn't really want to hear very much about the Holocaust. It was, it was just very, very difficult. Um, my father talked a lot about the Holocaust, and we were very lucky because he shared, actually, his experiences. He's a very prolific writer and speaker. My mom, Ima, didn't want to talk about it at all. I just, I just didn't want to hear about it. Um, my brother Uri, my oldest brother Uri, says that each one of us has inside, <coughs> in Hebrew, it's called Hamekomot our trembling places. These are places inside of us that are very meaningful, that make us feel a little bit uncomfortable, but also very touching. 
<coughs> and when I was younger, I didn't want to touch my trembling places. As I have grown up, I've come to realize that actually trying to get closer to my trembling places might be the way to get some healing from this enormous tragedy that happened to our family. In 2010, I was very lucky to get to go to Poland and Germany with my siblings and Abba to do what we call a roots trip, to visit places of significance before and during the war with Abba. We visited Krakow, Abba's hometown. We visited Auschwitz-Birkenau, where Abba was a prisoner when he was a teenager. And we traced the death march that Abba went through to Buchenwald in Germany. And we visited also uh, the Buchenwald site in Germany. This trip that we took in 2010 moved me in so many ways. And when we came back, I started to write our family history. And it was really a turning point for me in terms of wanting to find out more and really dedicating myself to telling my family story. Abba grew up in Krakow, in Poland. We visited Krakow during our trip. It, it was just a wonderful place. We visited the area where Abba home used to be. It's actually now a parking lot of a supermarket. Um, we actually traced Abba's daily walk to school. He went to public school, and we traced, it's about a mile that he went every day to school and back. The building of Abba School is still there in Krakow. It's now uh, an electric, electronics factory. And it was, it was just very meaningful to visit a place where Abba was a child, right? It's just one of those things. Even our parents used to be children at some point. <laughs> um, Abba's family was a traditional Jewish family, Orthodox. The children went to, to public school. Um, they made very modest living from having a small country store. Actually, their home used to be in the outskirts of Krakow, and they used to sell supplies such as feed the farmers in the area. Abba's family was a family of nine people. Tuvia, his Abba, his dad, Miriam, his mom, and seven children. 
Sheindel is the oldest sister, then the second brother is Israel, then Yoshua, my father is child number three, Saraita, Tzvi, Rosa, and Judith. Out of this family, what we know is that Yoshua was the only person that survived. On March 13, 1941, the Jews of Krakow were ordered to enter the Krakow ghetto. This is a depiction through Google Earth of the Krakow ghetto. It's about 15 streets, uh, maybe about 42 football fields. This is an area that housed before the war about 3,000 people. When the Krakow ghetto was closed about a week later, and during the time of the Krakow ghetto, there were between 15,000 and 20,000 people that were living in this space. When the family, my father's family, was made to enter the Krakow ghetto, they congregated together with other Jews in this square, Platzgoda. This is what Platzgoda looks like these days. It's now a memorial site with the empty chairs signifying people that are no longer with us. It's a very beautiful area. When the, when the Lieblich family, Lieblich is the previous name of, uh, of Abba, that's the original family name. When the Liblich family was made to enter the Krakow ghetto, they came, and the Nazis told them, you're a family of nine people. We don't have one apartment that can house all of you together. You're going to have to be separated. And so what took place is that Abba and his two oldest siblings, Shaman and Israel, were sent to one place, to Targova number five. And the mom, Sotuvia and Miriam, the parents, and the four youngest siblings were sent to a different building in the Krakow ghetto. The next day, Shaman, Israel, and Yoshua, the three oldest siblings, who were now in Targova number five, went to try to find the rest of the family. So through talking to people in the streets, they got to a building in the Krakow ghetto, and they tried to get closer. As they were getting closer to the building, the Nazis told them to not approach. And the three teenagers said, we just want to enter this building because we were told that our parents and our youngest siblings are in this building. And the Nazis told them, 
you can come in here. Last night, everyone who was in this building was taken away. That day was, the day before was the last time that Abba saw his parents and his youngest siblings. He became an orphan at age 14. In the next couple of years, Abba stayed in Targova number five. This is a photograph I took of Targova number five in 2010. The building is still there. We actually tried to enter Targova number five when we were there in 2010. It's now a doctor's office. We were not successful. Abba remembers it very, very well. This is just a close-up of the, the, the area and the, the sign on the building itself, Pogova number five. And this was in the Podgoja neighborhood of Krakow. The Targova number five location is one of the most concrete places that I remember from Abba telling stories and recounting what happened to him during the war. He lived in Targova number five where for a period of two years, after about a year there, his oldest sister, Shaden, left one day and never came back. And after a few more months, his second brother, Islaim, left one day and never came back. And so he was left alone. In his time in Talgova number five, this is where Abba had his very formative experiences. He was just a young teenager. This is the place where he learned about siblings' devotion to one another. This is where he learned about the value or the lack of value of money. And this is where he learned about the unpredictability of life. When we were visiting Krakow, we also visited a camp called Plashov. I will now show you a short clip of my father recounting something that happened to him in Plashov camp. It's a camp just outside of Krakow. Now it's inside the confines of the city, the, the Krakow city. The, the clip that I will show you, Abba is speaking in Hebrew and I will, I will speak over him to, to translate to you what, what he's saying. Uh, I just want to check, did anyone here saw the movie Schindler's List? By a show of hands. Okay, quite, quite a lot of people. 
so if you if you recall in the movie uh, Schindler's List, there is a depiction of uh, actually the building of Plashov camp, and there is also um, a very good um, depiction of Amon Goth, who was the commander of Plashov. Uh, and as you can see in the movie, it's actually a very good representation of the of the reality. Amon Goth was a, a very very cruel man. So let me tell you um, the three Zloty cookie story that Abba told us many times when we were growing up. This is my brother Asaf. One of the times here around Plashov, there were times that I had to come to work here as a slave laborer. One of the times I came here. And I see that there is a gathering. Maybe 10 or 15 people. And the head of Plashov Amongoth. And I see that there is some exchange between people. And Amongoth. I come close, what do I see? There is, I see this poor old Jewish man and he holds a tray with cookies. And Amon Goth is standing near him with a, a, a gun. I try to get closer and Amon Goth is signaling me to stop. And I just stood like nailed to my place. And Amon Goth says, see this Jew? How much is one of your cookies? And this poor Jewish man says, it's three zlotis. And Amon Goth is laughing. He said, soon it's going to be a better price. He tells the, the old Jew, take out all your cookies. Put them out on the tray. So this man takes out the cookies. About 30 cookies. Amon Goth points the gun shoots the Jew, and he falls to the ground. And Amon Goss said, Go ahead. Take, take from the cookies. No one would touch the cookies. That's it.
On March 13, 1943, the Krakow ghetto was liquidated, meaning that any Jews that were left in the ghetto were loaded on trains or lorries and were sent away to death in concentration camps. During liquidation of ghettos, the Nazis would go into the ghetto area, would go house to house, look under the floorboards, make sure that no one is trying to hide from the transports, and set the whole area on fire. I would like to share with you a poem that Abba wrote in 89, writing down what he witnessed that day. And I still fear by Yoshua Tzafril. And I still fear to roll back curtains for the fear that my eyelids be torn away from my blind eyes and my pupils be stabbed with that certain swing of the slicing bayonet slitting a baby. Drops of the crimson are still reddening on remaining snow, on a mound of coal in an abandoned shed, of the Targova Platzgodi corner, Podgoja, the 13th of March, 1943. After Krakow, we went to visit Auschwitz. This is a, is a photograph of us under the infamous Auschwitz gate in 2010. This is Abba, he was already in a wheelchair, but he said, you have to take me. Uh, I want to go with you to, to Europe. I want to show you where I grew up. This is Uri, my oldest brother, my sister Ora, and my brother Asaf. And it was um, really a moment of victory for us to take, to take this picture. As the war was coming to, towards its end, in January of 1945, Abba was one of 10,000 prisoners who started one of the death marches that were happening in Europe in that time. As the Nazis were figuring out that they are going to lose the war, and they were attacks from the, from the east by Russians, and from the West by the Allied forces, the Nazis had very um, sophisticated plans to try to get as many prisoners, including slave prisoners, into Germany 
as well as they were very busy covering the atrocities that they were doing uh, all over Europe, putting different death and concentration camps with bombs and trying to hide the atrocities that they have been doing. In January of 1945, wearing very light prisoner clothes, some prisoners had no shoes at all. Some prisoners were wearing wooden shoes, open wooden shoes. The death march from Auschwitz to Buchenwald started. From Auschwitz, the prisoners walked 36 miles in very deep snow. This was one of the coldest winters on record in Europe. They walked in snow to Gleiwicz in Poland, where they were loaded onto cattle train carts, which means it has open um, ceilings. And for 10 days, they went through, um, through Ostrova in the Czech Republic um, and all the way to Buchenwald in Germany. No food or water was offered to the prisoners during that time. Abba arrived uh, in Buchenwald in the end of January 1945. From the 10,000 prisoners who started this death march, only 3,000 prisoners made it to Buchenwald. Whoever was lagging during the time that they were walking in the snow was shot, and of course people died during the journey, no food, no water, and it was very, very cold. Abba was in Buchenwald until April of 1945. On April 11, 1945, American soldiers liberated the Buchenwald camp. And the war the war was over. But Abba was alone, and it was the beginning of a new journey. In the Illumination of Lightning by Yoshua Tzafriu, in the illumination of lightning, I saw a frightened boy in an open field, distancing himself from a well-branched <clears throat> aspen that is being severed at once. Gashes of a downpour are beating on his back and the tears of his face mix with the water columns. Such powerlessness. As the flood silences down, he will come into his ark, wondering from what will he construct his world that was destroyed.
I would like now to share with you an unexpected turn of events. And it all started in the Krakow municipality in 2010. So during our trip in Europe in 2010, the night before we got to Krakow, I told my siblings, when we are in Krakow, I would really like to get the birth certificates of our family. Why do I want to get the birth certificates? I want to get the birth certificates because for me, I heard these stories about all these different people in my childhood. I, I wanted to make them real. There were real people. And getting the birth certificate was just a very meaningful act for me. So we're getting into the Krakow municipality, and the clerk at the front desk says to Abba, if you want to get a birth certificate for yourself and for your family, you have to show us evidence that you were actually born in Poland. Mm. And my oldest brother, Uri, says to the clerk, so Abba has the Israeli passport, which you take with you when you travel outside of Israel. And in Israeli passport, he doesn't say what his country of origin is. In Israel, there is a country ID, very similar to American driver's license. And on that country ID, it says what your country of origin is. But you don't take that outside of Israel. It's, it's just for, 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 for when you live in Israel. So we don't have that country ID. And the clerk says, I'm sorry, I cannot help you. Now, I'm the youngest by far. And you know, the youngest children are a little bit spoiled. They kind of throw fits. So I went into action. And I said to Abba, I said to my siblings, in Hebrew, I said, which means we're not giving up. And I told Abba, take your left sleeve up. So Abba did that. And when he takes his left sleeve up, you can see the tattoo that he has from Auschwitz. And so his tattoo is showing, 108, 187, and the clerk turns red. And I told my siblings, we're making progress now. <laughs> <laughs> so she takes off up the stairs, I'm sure to talk to a manager, and Asaf, my second brother, and me, we go upstairs after her. <laughs> and so, in fact, a supervisor came out, and we're all standing in the hall, and with the help of a translator, Asaf is telling the supervisor, we can show you Nazi-era documents, we have them, and those Nazi-era documents are going to show you the direct relationship between the tattoo on Abba's arm and the fact that he is originally from Poland. And the supervisor says to us, I'm very sorry to tell you this, but it's against our policy to use 
Nazi-era documents to understand the origin where a person is from. At that point, I was just enraged inside of me because I felt not only our family members were murdered, now we're dealing with the situation, will their memory be, their memory be denied? And I said, no, that's, that's just not going to work. I said, the only thing we have are Nazi-era documents. Our family was forced to enter the Krakow ghetto. We don't have anyone left. So the supervisor disappears back into her office for very tense and silent five minutes that Asaf and I are waiting outside. And then she comes back. And now she's gesturing to us to follow her. We follow her, office after office after office. She's in charge. We get to the, the, the office where she sits and she's gesturing us to sit down. Okay, she, she's allowing her, us to use her computer. So we pull up Google Docs. And here's the document we showed the supervisor to convince her to release the birth certificates of our family. So this is a document that's actually a certificate that was issued when Abba arrived in Buchenwald after the death march. This is Abba's Auschwitz tattoo number, 108-187. This is his original Polish name, family name Liblich, Seja, Joshua. He was born in March of 27. This is his street address, Wielitzka 73 in Krakow. His vater, mother, father in German is Tobias or Tuvia, and his mater, mother in German, is Maria or Miriam from Krakow. And it just shows here that he arrived from Auschwitz into Buchenwald on the 26th day of January 1945. So she immediately prints this document. And from that moment on, she became completely engaged and dedicated to help us. We were successful in getting the birth certificate of Abba. Seja is his Polish name. This is the 11th day of May of 2010 when we got the certificate from the Krakow municipality. We were also successful in getting the birth certificates of the rest of the family. This is a birth certificate of Judith, <coughs> Abba's youngest sister. She was born in 1936. She was only five years old when she was murdered. It, it was a very happy day for us. All these historical figures from my childhood became real people on that day.
up until October 2013, all he knew that all of Abba's family was murdered. As I mentioned, after we came back from the trip, I started to work on our family memoir. And during that, I was doing some research, and I tried to understand more what happened when the family was split when they entered the Krakow ghetto. What happened to Abba's parents and his four youngest siblings? So what I did is I sent queries about them and about other family members to the U.S. Holocaust Museum in D.C. And for the family, they said, we don't have any information about Tuvia, about Miriam, about Israel, Saraita, Tzvi, Rosa, and Judith. But for Shendel, I got over 50 documents from the U.S. Holocaust Museum telling me, in effect, that not only Shendel actually survived the Holocaust, she moved to Israel in 1949. And Abba and her ended up living a distance of about two and a half hours from each other for 30 years and didn't know that. I would like now to share with you a clip of our family reuniting 70 years in the making. Shandel unfortunately passed away in the 70s so we never got to meet her, but we did find her two children, and her husband, my uncle, also passed away, but we did find their two children, our newly found cousins, and we had a reunion in 2013. <coughs> this clip does have um, um, closed captions, so you will be able to um, to see. I'm trying to find. This is my cousin. These are two cousins, male and female, with Abba. This is a memorial in my kibbutz, and all the family is written on the memorial.
ובאמת להעביר לדור הבא איך להיות עם אומץ ובאמת להמשיך בחיים. כל הנקודה זה לחיות, לא לחיות בעבר אלא לחיות, קדימה בעתיד. ובמשך הספר הזה אני עושה כל מיני מחקרים. והיה לי איזו סוגיה שבדקתי אותה בקשר לבדה של המשפחה שמשהו שם לא הסתדר לי. אז התקשרתי לאסף, לאח שלי, שאסף הוא בינינו בין ארבעת האחים הכי בקיא בכל מה שקרה בהיסטוריה של המשפחה. אמרתי לו, אסף, אני לא מבינה פה משהו בכניסה של המשפחה להגיד תודה רבה לך. הוא אמר לי, את נגעת בסוגיה הכי קשה. אני לא יכולה לעזור לך, אנחנו צריכים לשבת על זה ולחקור את זה. ישבתי מול המחשב, חשבתי, הסתכלתי, בדקתי. אמרתי, מי יעזור ומי יעזור, ואיחדתי מחלקת במיון והחלטתי פשוט לשאול שאילתות על כל האחים והאחיות של, של אבא, של סמי יהושע. וקיבלתי תשובות בחזרה, ופתאום האחות הגדולה שלו, שנדליה, והתשובה שקיבלתי במוזיאון השואה בארצות הברית, הם הולכים לי מעל חמישים מסמכים. הייתי בשוק מוחלט. אמרתי, תשמעו, משהו פה לא נראה לי נכון, כאילו לא מסתדר לי עם ההוויית חיים שלנו, שאנחנו לבד. תבדקו את זה, שלחתי לאסף לאורה ולאורי. This is my brother Asaf. These are photographs that we got after meeting our cousins. This is them after the war. My aunt and uncle. And she thought everybody was dead. Yes, exactly. This is my aunt at age 45. <laughs> This is my aunt headstone. <coughs> this is my brother Uri. This is my cousin, Tuvia, who was born in 1949. <laughs> Thank you.
במקרש מרגל שאלו סיפורים רבים, וביניהם סיפורה של עדי, שיהושע הוא תודה חדש ישן, הרבתה בצבא לצטט משירו של הדוד, אבי. אני מעריכה שכן. אני מאמינה שאימא שלי אולי עוד הייתה חיה עוד הרבה שנים. בטוח, בטוח, אין לי ספק. יש... This is my sister אורה. איזשהו כאב כזה, שבעצם הם חיו אחד ליד השני, ולדעת שהקשר ביניהם היה מאוד משמעותי. אני חושבת שהגשת הבדידות הזאת, שהעולם, שההורים שלנו נשארו לבד בעולם, אחרי המלחמה, להגשת הבדידות הזאת, פתאום להרגיש שיש משפחה, ולחלוק איתם את החוויות, ולזוז קדימה, ולראות שיש עתיד משפחה, וחוויה אחרת לגמרי. So let me close and thank you very much. Thank you, Pastor Joel. And I, I just, maybe we have a moment for a question, maybe not. Yes, uh, why don't we take one or two questions, and then if you want to, uh, if you need to go, go ahead, and if you want to speak with Ines about yes. her journey, her faith, um, her family, absolutely. that'd be wonderful. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Yes, please. Here's, my name is Marilyn, and I am reading about the Holocaust in my Swedish literature class. It's a book that was written by Hayden Freed. and about her experiences in Auschwitz and Bergen-Belsen. Mm -hmm. She survived, and now that she's been liberated, she's 92, now living in Sweden, but she makes a point of talking to thousands of children and young people about the Holocaust so that people don't forget the story. And that's what you're getting to. It's, it's a horrendous book to read. אני חושבת שזה היה מאוד קשה. 
documents we got from the U.S. Holocaust Museum. We know exactly what happened to her because we also got Nazi-era documents on her. So my father always used to say the change of disappeal in the cold season of 1942. Well, 70 years later, we got the documents, and in October of 1942, it was already the cold season in Poland, she was transferred from the Krakow ghetto actually to Plaszow. But it's not like people knew anything, right? So she left one day trying to find work, trying to find a way to earn a piece of coal or a rotten potato or something to make a living, and she never came back. So he assumed that it, she's gone. And my father actually looked a lot after the war, like many, so many people, for relatives. But it's not like today that there's a lot of way to do cross-references, and obviously people change names. So she, after the war, got married, and her last name changed to Ellie. Sure. And he was always looking for Shandel Lipich. Yeah. Thank you. Yes. One more question. Is Ron also gone? He was here. He had gone out, yeah. That's too bad. There's, there's a guy here who served in Europe. and He was at, I don't know if it was Buchenwald, he was at one of the camps after it was liberated. Wow. Was I would love to meet him. Yeah. He's, he's he got a lot of memories. He was a little hard to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, not normal. Yeah. No, this guy's just in Europe. Here, I have a question. Iris, do you find that young people are open to hearing about this? Very much so. So, so I do a lot of speaking, um, actually mostly in schools um, and also in universities, so college, college-age kids. And I, quite honestly, I'm amazed at the questions that kids, um, that kids share. And uh, I, ha- I have to tell you, uh, from the schools that I go to, many times I, I get afterwards reflections from the kids. And uh, really back to um, Wally's opening, some of the reflections that I get from kids today kids that were not necessarily born in the United States or that feel alienated in today's environment. It's, it's just so, so touching. Um, and and I'm, so I'm amazed every time by how kids find this very contemporary and it, it touches them. I'm very grateful for that. Thank you for doing this. By the way, Norm just returned, so you'll have to see him. Is that his autobiography? Yes. <laughs> Yes. Well, thank you, Iris.